You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So our Advent text for the season this year is going to be 1 Peter, and that's going to be our text. Primarily, 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2 will be the text. So if you want to, to focus on where we're headed, I invite you to read the Christmas story, of course, um, but 1 Peter will be our particular text as a family. Now, a little context here before we get into this. Uh, we mentioned this before. Peter is one of my, 1 Peter is one of my favorite epistles uh, simply because of the story associated with 1 Peter. The Christians are spread throughout Asia Minor. They're living under the reign and the rule of Emperor Nero, who's one of the most despicable Roman emperors in the history of the Roman world. And he has a penchant towards persecuting Christians. And so he is doing some utterly despicable things to Christians. Uh, he's doing more than what the emperors often did. He would have them beheaded. He would dip. Children. Um, he would have them beheaded. He would dip their heads in tar. He would place them on a stick. He would light them on fire. And those would be his tiki torches for the parties he would throw or to light the way. That is a small example as to what Nero would do to Christians in his rule and reign. And it is in that context where the Christian church had mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, killed by this emperor, all because they believe that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the context for which Peter writes. First Peter is an epistle on submission where Peter has the audacity in his epistle to command the church to submit to the emperor, to pray for the emperor. There is no more, in my opinion, cruciform, Christ-centered, Christ-informed, gospel-centered, gospel-informed epistle, in my opinion, completely my opinion, in the New Testament, because of the context for which we find this epistle written. It is absurd if Peter would have said what he says in this text in a church, in today's world, in living in this context even somewhat similarly to that, Peter would be kicked out of many churches because it is that offensive what he teaches in this letter. Now, that is not why we chose it for the Advent season. We chose it for the Advent season to understand and to put it in the context of Advent of the absolute profundity of... Is that a word, profundity, Clifton? Sounds good. Um, of how profound this text is. So I want to read the text, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin verse 3. Remember the context, church. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Really? We're being protected? You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had struggle in various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes through refined by, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
talking about the second advent. You love him, though you have not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Henry Nowen, in his book, Spiritual Formation, tells a story of two twins in the womb. It goes like this. Twins were talking to each other in their mother's womb. The sister said to her brother, I believe there is life after birth. Her brother protested vehemently, No, no, this is all there is. There's a dark and, this is a dark and cozy place, and we have nothing else to do but to cling to the cord that feeds us, sister. The little girl insisted, There must be something more than this dark place. There must be something else, a place with light where there is freedom to move. Still, she could not convince her brother. After some silence, the sister said hesitantly, I have something else to say. And I'm afraid you won't believe that either, but I think there is a mother. Her brother became furious. A mother? He shouted. What are you talking about? I have never seen a mother and neither have you. Who put that idea in your head? As I told you, this place is all we have. Why do you want more? There is not such a, this is not such a bad place after all. We have all we need, so let's just be content. Sister was quite overwhelmed by her brother's response and for a while didn't say anything. But she couldn't let go of her thoughts and since she had a twin brother to speak to, she finally said, Don't you feel these squeezes every once in a while? They're they're quite unpleasant and sometimes painful. Well, well, yes, he answered. What's special about that? Well, sister said, I think these squeezes are there to get us ready for another place, a place much more beautiful than this, where we see our mother face to face. Don't you think that's exciting? And the brother didn't answer. He was fed up with the foolish talk of the sister and felt that the best thing would do would be to simply ignore her and hope that she would leave him alone. As odd as that story is, I like what that story infers. We are wired for hope. We are. We are created for something more. There's a voice that tells us there has to be something more, but we don't know exactly what that voice is. But we're wired for hope. And the question is, do we live as if this moment where we are is all we have? Do we live as if this life is all we have? Or do we, and do we resign ourselves to what this moment has to offer? Or do we long for something more? We, we don't miss this moment, but we know that there's something more. Do we choose to claim the divine promises and new birth that Peter reminds us of? A new birth grounded in a living hope, rooted in God's preferred future. God's preferred future meaning when Jesus comes again, restoring all and redeeming all that has been made wrong through sin and rebellion and death and making it right once and for all, where there will be no sorrow, tears, and pain, where the new heavens and new earth come together and we live in life glorious, glorious presence of God together, reigning with Him, as Scripture says, enjoying the goodness of God together as beloved community in a way that we quite can't do here, but we only taste, as the Bible says, as a foretaste here. Do we, do we have a living hope rooted 
in God's preferred future, what God has promised will happen because of King Jesus, and actually because we have the Spirit of God as the first fruits, is happening right now because of King Jesus. See, Advent reminds us that there are two pictures of the future. And in philosophy, there are these two pictures. There is the futurum, or the future, which is the outcome we expect because of the way things are now. It's the, it's the out-of-the-past story of progression. In other words, it's the future that naturally out, that comes about because that's the way things are. It's, it's what we just say, this is, the way thing, this is the natural result of what happened yesterday. It's that kind of future. That is a future that we have that we can choose. It's the future that the world embraces. But then there's the future that Advent creates. There's the Adventus. The Latin word for Advent that, that is determined not by the momentum of the past, but becomes a surprising proposal from God that an altogether different future is possible and is actually breaking into the present. See, the Futurum future, it, it embraces the status quo and leads to a certain sense of resignation that says history repeats itself. But Adventus says that because of the Christmas story, history can even be redeemed. That a new present and a new past can actually happen. And it turns powers upside down and offers real hope for those who've been excluded. It's a future made possible only by the stirring of the Spirit of God. The question for all of us is which future do we live in? Do we live in a Futurum future or an Adventist future? Do we settle for a future that say that's just how things will probably work out? Or, or will we choose the Adventist, the, the future of Advent, and believe that in the manger of Christmas, God broke into the world with a new future certain to come? And it's a world where love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control can actually be experienced now, not in its fullness, but now. And that the church becomes a sign and a foretaste and an instrument of this future when we're faithful to the reign of God. Or do we embrace just the future? Because if we embrace just the future, then we sometimes leave hope on the table. Because hope is about expectancy. It's a deep longing for the expectation of God's fulfilled promise. Hope is about expectant waiting. Do we expect God to work? Do we expect God to do what God has promised to do in Scripture and in what He's revealed in the person of Jesus? Or do we expect God to not do anything at all? And then when we, if we expect God to work, will we choose hope? And trust that the One who promised us life and life to the full is actually faithful. Then will we choose hope and trust that the One who promised that His Spirit can produce from within us love, joy, and peace, and that He's able to fulfill that which He promised? And what I appreciate about Advent is Advent calls us to wait, but it calls us to wait and to do so in hope. Where we can choose hope and learn to wait. Wait on God. Wait on others. Wait even on ourselves. That Advent reminds us that there is a holiness in waiting. When we wait in hope. Stanley Howarth, a theologian and professor, said that Advent is a recovery of how to live in a world of impatience as a patient people. As people of Advent, we remember that we are a people of promise in a world of impatience. 
that God's arrival in King Jesus says that this isn't all there is to life. And in this text this morning, Peter reminds us that we're a people who wait in hope because of a new birth. But the problem, see, is waiting is a loss of virtue. No doubt technology has done harm to waiting. We no longer need to wait in line to buy movie tickets. You can buy them online at Fandango.com. No longer do we need to wait for the news to come out. We can get it online. Instantly, the day it happens. I remember growing up, my grandmother's goal in life, my great-grandmother's goal in life, was to stay up late enough to watch the news, followed by Johnny Carson. But no longer do we even need to do that. You can catch Jimmy Fallon online anytime you want. And you can catch the news whenever you want. Waiting is this lost virtue. There's not much about our culture that invites us to wait. But church, the most precious things in life require waiting, though. Pregnancy to birth, healing from sickness, watching things grow. It's divine law that we have to wait. But there's nothing about culture that invites us to wait. And Advent is the time of year where we can slow down. We can take a Sunday and we can remember that we are called to be a people who wait, but we wait in hope, we wait in in peace, we wait in joy, we wait in love, we wait with a sense of expectation, we wait as a people of promise in an impatient world, but the reality of it is, is that waiting is hard and it's no longer natural. And yet sometimes in waiting, especially with a sense of expectation, we can ache, can't we? Even as we wait in hope, we can ache. Peter even reminds us in this text that we will ache when trials come. No one was aching more than the Christians in Asia Minor. And Paul reminds us even in Romans 8 that we will groan as we wait. Even creation groans as we wait. But we wait still in hope. But because we'll ache even when we wait in hope, we can be free to not disguise the aching, not deny the aching. One of the profound differences between Christianity and every other world religion is that Christianity is the only religion that doesn't try to escape suffering. It doesn't try to run from the aching. It actually runs toward it. Ours is a faith of aching. But ours is a faith of aching because of the hope of what happened on that cross that began at Christmas. Like the psalmist, we'll be overcome by the question, how long, O oh God? We'll be assailed by the questions of why. We know too well the brokenness of this world and, and that it often ushers us what appears to be silence like the 400 years of silence that Israel experienced before that first Christmas. But when we wait in hope, even in the midst of the aching, living in the context of beloved community, we can remember the Christian message. We can remember that God never failed to keep His promises, even in the 400 years of silence. He wasn't checked out. We can remember that His timing may not be my timing, but He's always on time, even when I feel He's late. We can remember that just as He did in the Christ child born a refugee in a manger to a poor refugee family, God is prone to doing the unthinkable and unimaginable, and greater still, He's the only one who can pull it off. And above all, we remember that He will not fail to keep His promises no matter how long the silence or deep the aching. 
It is there when we remember that many of our ideas could just be wrong or short-sighted or as a result of being overcome by the aching or embellished by the, our penchant towards impatience. We've just forgotten hope. But it's when, in, it's when we're in the company of the church we remember that no matter what God is, is doing, He hasn't left us alone. We have a Spirit because we have Jesus and because we have a Spirit, we have one another. See, Advent informed, hope shaped, waiting encourages us to find God even in the present. Not simply in our future. God is not only coming, He's already here. So while we anticipate the future with hope, we know that living mindfully in the present is a key way to encounter God in the now. I want you to remember God did not say to Moses in the Exodus that He was the great I was, or He was the great. I, I will be. He said, I'm the great I am. That means in the here and now. One of the great joys of Christianity is that God's always got something good prepared for our future. For the people of Israel, it was a Messiah. And at just the right time, Paul said, the Messiah came. And for us, now it's greater intimacy with Christ, who's alive in the Spirit, for, for we have awaiting for us life eternal. But that life eternal begins now in the presence of God. The Advent calls us to wait, but to do so in hope. Will we choose hope? Or will we plow ahead in life, driven by the aching and the impatience of not having what our hearts deeply desire? Now, do you know the difference between a country dog and a city dog? I was acquainted with both growing up. It, depended, it was dependent upon where we, where we lived at the time and sometimes who we lived with. But like that old hound dog living on my uncle's farm, country dogs live in wide open spaces with a great deal of freedom to roam. They can go to the creek, wrestle with a skunk, sleep in a sunny pasture. And at first, they do just that. They enjoy it. They love it. But after a while, if you've ever noticed, a country dog stays in the same old place after a while. Day after day, the same old place on the master's porch. Just like the old hound dog in my uncle's place, who I thought was the laziest dog ever. And he used to think, go, let's play, you know, let's play in the wide open spaces. But that old hound dog wanted to sit by that rocking chair, because after all, if he sat there long enough and was content to be near the master, he'd probably find himself eating a biscuit or get a pat on the head or, in my uncle's case, have a bowl full of warm leftover beer. Country dogs learn to be content and stay near the master. Once they've explored the freedom. But then there are the city dogs. City dog is quite different. Like my old dog, which was a Pomeranian named Frisky. The, <laughs> the city dog just can't wait to get out. The master may have to run after the dog or get in the car and search the neighborhood to find the fugitive, but the city dog has one aim, and that is getting out. The dog has learned when and how the doors will be open and how to nudge it open so that the dog can escape. And if the master sees the dog, he or she will have to often beg the dog or bribe the dog with a biscuit or maybe lasso it to the ground to leash it to bring it on home. In my case, Frisky was never found once he was able to escape from the door when my cousin decided to open it just a little too wide. See, those who approach Christian life with no hope 
or a fickle hope or like the city dog. They feel cramped and closed in by life and will look for any escape, even if it means giving in to impatience. They rarely wait upon the Lord because their hope isn't really anchored. Those who approach the Christian life with hope are like the country dog. They've seen the wide open spaces of what the world has to offer, even in all its brokenness and darkness, but they find their greatest contentment learning, learning how to live on the front porch close to the Master. And even when He appears to be gone, they know He's coming back because they know that they are His. See, I discovered long ago that we all become prisoners of something. What I mean is that there's always something that drives us, compels us, trusts, thrusts us into a state of mind where we're resolved and unwilling to, to give up on whatever we long for. We all become prisoners of something. I, I realized this long ago. I look back in my life and realize that I was a prisoner of my own desire for self-worth and my own self-centered curiosity. See, as a kid with less money uh, than most of my friends, I wanted to be accepted by my classmates and, and later my college buddies and then my fraternity brothers and and, and while I was also a kid, I, I had a very unhealthy curiosity about life. I was a musician. I was a creative. I was an artist. And, and I was wired by being a creative to see what other people don't oftentimes see. Us artists are kind of flaky like that from time to time. And I've always been blues in the life of the mind. And what I mean is, musically, I was always drawn to blues because my mind was always kind of in a state of blues kind of a dark soul. And I was a saxophonist and a harmonica player in, in high school and college. And I, I played in the smoke-filled bars and the listening rooms. I was called on by band after band to play the solos or to accompany them with harmonic overlays. And, and the songs then that I would even write were always bent toward the dark side of life, a preoccupation with the brokenness and the sorrow of the world. And even now, it still comes easy for me to be that way. And I think it's hap it happens when you're blues in the life of the mind. Because I have a tendency to even today be overwhelmed by the darkness and sorrow in the world. But I've always been jazz in the ways of the world. And what I mean by that is improvisations always kind of come easy to me. In these bands I was in, I was simply given a chord to play in and then I could just kind of take it from there. It didn't have to give me a lead sheet or a chord sheet. Either. In both high school and college jazz bands, I was the improvisationist. I... I could explore every note and rhythm a chord chart would allow. When I was a music major in college, my music theory professor used to scold me regularly for not writing music according to the rules. The rules were set in his mind by Ludwig van Beethoven, so he thought that you had to write music and, and explore music in the way that Beethoven would, but, but I felt like Beethoven was just keeping me from exploring all that music had to offer, and so I eventually got kicked out of music school. My saxophone instructor got so tired of me complaining about playing Baroque pieces for our sax instruction, he decided to put on some blues and jazz and tell me to bring my harmonica to our lessons, and we'd just jam out for an hour and a half. He used to play with the Temptations, so he understood my pain. But I've always been a bit of an improvisationist in life, and I've always kind of had this way about me that was sort of jazz in the ways of the world that I could kind of step into a place and see the boundaries and, and explore on the other side of the fence what might be. But 
And many times it led me to blaze some pretty awesome trails to do good things, but sometimes it led me to trample the mud of drugs and alcohol and wild living. It wasn't until my life flipped upside down that I, that I realized in my mid-twenties that I would become a prisoner to my own desire for self-worth and selfish curiosity. I had been long in charge of my life, and it just really wasn't working. It wasn't until I discovered that Jesus really is Lord that He's a present, promise-making, promise-keeping Lord, that I decided at that moment to become a prisoner of hope. Like Advent, Jesus' love and power broke into my present in a most disruptive way. And I grew up hearing that He could do that and that He had promised He would, but I'd never truly opened my eyes to see it. And when I did, I knew that there was nothing better for the world than for a guy who's blues in the life of the mind and jazz in the ways of the world to know that there's a God, a God of hope, who is constantly improvising this, this thing called life. And I'm still, I'm still that way, but, but now I lay my blues and my jazz at the crucified and resurrected King, and, and I, I play in the rhythm of the Spirit. I, I begin to walk with the Spirit. I'm learning what it means to do that, and I'm learning what it means to do that within the players He calls the church. And we find that when we, when we step back, we can see that we're all prisoners of something. And the question for you as I share my little piece is, what are you a prisoner of and will you choose to let it go and become a prisoner of hope? Where no matter how bad things look or how bad things feel, you know that there's a bloodstained cross and empty tomb that's not going to be undone. Or where the words of Peter come to mean something different for us. Peter says to us again, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You, you rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had struggle and various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love Him, though you have not seen Him, and though not seeing Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 13, So ready your minds for action. Be serious and set your hope. That's a choice. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Many of you know that Vicki Mills was baptized into Christ. Last Sunday, and I have her permission, I want to share with you her story because it is a story of hope. Speaker was born 33 years ago, Williamsburg Community Hospital. Her mother and father determined through a series of unfortunate life events and choices that they weren't going to be in her life, and so she was formally adopted by her grandfather and grandmother, her and her sister. And they were raised up by their grandfather and grandmother who nurtured them the best they knew how. But eventually, I think around the age of seven, her grandmother passed away. And when she was 11, she was 11 years old, her grandmother died. And not too soon before that, she was assaulted by a neighbor. 
And her grandfather wanted to press charges, and so she had to testify in court and went through all of that trauma just to have later on her grandmother to pass. And her grandfather at this point was dying of cancer. And so her mother came back into her life to try and help with things, but eventually her mother left again because she had that alcohol and drug addiction that eventually would come to destroy her life. This was a really bad time for Vicky, because it was at the age of 17 that she became homeless, relying upon the kindness of strangers, oftentimes taken advantage of and abused by others, living with her own personal addictions, moving from hotel to hotel in homelessness. And then in 2007, her mother passed, and that's when she started talking to her sister again. But by now, her sister was staying in a group home, and they remained quite distant. The whole time Vicky's moving through this life, she can't get much help from the various resources of any systems. Because physically, and she appeared to be able-bodied. And so people thought she was just chronically homeless due to her own choices and that she was abusing the system. But little did anyone know that Vicky was actually intellectually disabled. No one had ever had her tested. She could literally count the change in her pockets, but she could not tie her shoe. And then in 2012, Vicky becomes pregnant. The baby girl Alyssa was born in March of 2013. When Alyssa was about a month old, something happened that Vicky now understands better, knowing that it was not her fault because she couldn't take care of the baby, but the baby was placed in foster care. And shortly after, Vicky found out she was pregnant again. It was then she stepped into our church building, entering the winter homeless shelter last year. And that was when everything began to change for her. See, the first night she arrived, some of our longtime members pulled me aside and said, who is that? And I said, I don't know. So I can find out. I'd been talking to her, but I'm not good with names, which is a vocational hazard for me, for all who are visiting, I apologize. So I asked her, and I found out her name was Mills. And when I shared that with the Davenports and the Heltons, they said, I knew it. See, what I didn't know, and what Vicky didn't know, or at least had forgotten, is that Vicky, while growing up, was raised in this church by her grandfather and her grandmother. Her grandfather, Carl, was a deacon in this church. Her grandmother was the pianist. And some 25 plus years later, after being homeless and abused in more ways than I can even imagine, she shows up on our doorstep. And I called my elders, called one of them specifically Danny, and I said, there's no way we can let her go back to the street. I mean, if anybody's grandkid, if any of us are dead, and your grandkid shows up homeless at the doorstep of this church where you've given your life to for the glory of God, I mean, don't we have a responsibility? I, I would pray that we would take care of it. I felt like she was family, and so did the shepherd, and so did everybody else. And so at that point forward, we began walking with Vicky, and particularly T Tammy. Tammy Harden began walking with Vicky in a very personal way, and we went to court dates with her and helped them navigate the, 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 the crazy waters of the shelter, and when she had the baby, we put her in a place to let her recover so she wouldn't go back on the street, and the baby went into foster care with the other baby, 
and we were able to get her to colonial behavioral health and get her tested and get her intellectual disability actually solidified and, and, and the paperwork drawn so that people could understand that though she could count the change in her pocket, she couldn't, she couldn't tie her shoe and so she can't really do some of the things that people think she should be able to do though she doesn't come off as though she has this intellectual disability. She entered into the three restoration process and now she is, has a job and, and now she is is working at this 12 hours a week with the Goodwill uh, through a job training program, and she's waiting to get her SSI, and, and now she, for the first time in her, well, in her life, lives in an apartment and has a good Christian roommate and is learning how to live life the best way she can. And, and last week, she decided that the only one who could make this possible and who has made this possible is Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. See, to me, that's a story of hope. That's a lot of waiting, though, isn't it? So what if we wait 25 years for God to show up and do something big? The question is, will we be waiting in hope? Or will we give up? Peter says, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you to the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it's written, Be holy because I am holy. Church, Advent reminds us that we are a people of promise and we're called to wait. But we're called to wait in hope. No matter what this world offers, we know that in Jesus, God has come, is coming again, and yet in the midst of the waiting is present through His Holy Spirit within us as we wait together as His beloved community. Because God is always present among us, the season of Advent reminds us that God is in the manger. Wealth is in poverty. Light is in darkness. Presence is in loneliness. And life is in death. No evil can overtake us. No matter what is done to us, whether by people or the devil himself, Nothing can be done in the life of a believer that God can't redeem for the good of the believer and to the praise of His glory. So, so today in this Advent Sunday, let us choose rightly. Let us set our minds for action. Let's stop asking all the questions and just set our minds for action, awaken to the reality of God's inbreaking kingdom through His present love and reign and set our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the final revelation of Jesus. Let's, let's choose obedience. And choose not to go back to our former way of life or play according to the rules of the old age that is passing away. But as the one who has called us is holy, as the one who was born in the manger is holy, as a people made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ, let us learn how to live holy life as we participate in this holy waiting. Let us wait.